I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 once again, and we'll continue in our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, I want to draw your attention to just one verse. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21, but I want to draw your attention to verse number 18. It says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Our subject this morning is, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. We left off in our verse-by-verse exposition last week how that as the Lord had healed on another Sabbath day, there were a great multitude of people who followed after him. He had withdrawn himself from where he was. The Pharisees had continued their intentional attack against his uh, so-called violation of the Sabbath law by healing. And he withdraws from the crowds, and yet a great multitude follows him. Verse 16 tells us that he healed them all. He followed those who followed. He healed them. Uh, Whatever their ailment was, he healed them. But it's in verse 17 that he gives a, or verse 16 rather, at the end of verse 15 into 16, he gives a very interesting charge or a commandment, an admonition, if you will. He charged them that they should not make him known. Uh, They should not go and tell who did this. They should not go and proclaim even the glory of what have taken place. Jesus warns here. Uh, This is not a mere suggestion. He warns them not to make Him known, and we learned last week this is because we realized Jesus was operating, of course, in obedience to the timetable, that His time had not yet come. It was not the time for His passion. It was not the time for His suffering and His atoning death upon the cross. Uh, It's not yet. So Jesus had left that Sabbath healing And he had gone on and continued his preaching ministry and, of course, the ministry of healing. Everywhere Jesus went, he drew great crowds. Those crowds would flock to him. And we know that scripturally and and all the Gospels tend to agree this way, that most people were not there for the right reasons. They were not there to see the Messiah. They were not there to glorify his name. They were there to get something from him. They wanted healing. If you had a withered hand like the man that was healed in the synagogue, you would go, I want, a, I want my withered hand healed. Or a man that was born blind, I want my sight restored. I, I, I'm lame, I want to be able to walk. Most people came to Jesus for what He could give them, not because of who He was. And Jesus gives this very interesting command. Uh, don't make me known. And the reasoning for that leads us into verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah or Isaiah the prophet saying, behold my servant. That is a direct reference and a quote to Isaiah 42. This reasoning as to why Jesus says, do not make me known, is directly related to the prophecy of Isaiah. This is the very reason why. Now Matthew, as he often does in his gospel, describes Jesus' ministry, and he often does it with the Old Testament prophecies in view, which, by the way, is extremely important. 
When you view the ministry of Christ, you should view it through the, 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 the view and the ministry of what the Old Testament teaches us. Jesus' ministry does not just stand alone. It, it is taken in connection with what the Old Testament shows us and teaches us about who he is. Isaiah 42 is about Christ. Isaiah 42 is a prophecy Isaiah proclaimed about Christ. It, it is, as we were reading that, uh, if you are a child of God, it, you were almost, uh, at least for me, I'm reading through it, I'm, I'm wanting to rejoice thinking, this is the Messiah. This is Christ that Isaiah is writing about. And my heart always hurts when I hear people say, I just don't see Christ in the Old Testament. Well, my question always is, I don't know if they see Christ at all. If they don't see Christ in the Old Testament, you're not going to see Him in the New Testament, not in the light that He should be seen. But Matthew does what Matthew does under the inspiration of the Spirit. Just in the Old Testament alone, we can't cover them all. But there are well over 300 specific prophecies about the coming Messiah. For example, even years and years before Jesus' birth, the incarnation, it was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Specifically, not that he'll be born somewhere and be somewhere in the world in general, but know that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. 1. That his, that those who put him on the cross and those who would be responsible for nailing him to the cross, that they would gamble for his garments. Psalm 22, verse 18, which we read on Wednesday evening. Do you realize the astronomical odds of a single person fulfilling just those three? Do you realize how unthinkable that would be that one man would fulfill just three and yet there are over 300 prophecies that he directly fulfilled? Now, to, to you and I, that may seem, well, that's nothing really. That's not really a miracle. Oh, that's a miracle. It's more than a miracle. It is God. It is the proof that the prophets were writing not about general. They were giving specifics that this is who he's going to be. So that there would be no mistake, when he shows up, you'll know him. You'll see him. It won't be a surprise. Matthew quotes the prophecy that we read in Isaiah 42. Specifically, if you were reading and following along closely, you will see that Isaiah's prophecy centered more on what the Messiah would not do more than what he would do. That's what makes the prophecy of Isaiah 42 very interesting. Oftentimes, prophecies are more about what he will do. Isaiah 42, the prophecy is more about what he will not do, which is really the key to understanding what Matthew 12 is all about this morning. That prophecy that's found in Isaiah 42, our scripture reading, began with a call. The call to draw our eyes by God the Father to someone. Matthew 12, verse 18 says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, my chosen. It's not 
word for word verbatim, but we know there's no argument in this room, I don't think, that we're talking about the same person. The same call to attention in Isaiah 42 is the same thing being called to our attention in Matthew 12. Behold my servant, who I have chosen. Or Isaiah says, mine elect. Now there is... The meaning in this call, of course, that God the Father chose His servant whom He appointed and anointed to be the Messiah. We all agree that without the election of Jesus Christ, and that's a whole message for another day, there would be no electing of individuals. There would be no election of you and I. The the doctrine of election would just be a sham, and we know it's not. It's actually a very comforting doctrine. At one time in my life, I was not comforted by the doctrine of election. I was horrified by the thought. I was horrified by the thought that who gave God the right to choose? God should give me the right to choose. Well, you better be thankful He didn't give you the right to choose because you've never chosen. And you'd still be lost today. So if you've got it in your mind or your heart today that you had some point of choosing Christ for yourself, you need to get that out of that and repent of your pride. We've asked that question twice today. Where would you be without the grace of God? The grace of God is demonstrated in our election. But yet, here is him, Isaiah using the terminology, God the Father even referring to the Messiah as my elect. In the biblical doctrine of election, we know that the supreme elected one is Christ or God the Son. That means every other person who is the recipient of God's electing grace by God's sovereign grace are elected in and through Christ. Not through your election that you chose to pray. You're elected in Him through and by Christ and Christ alone. There are thousands of people that sing the hymns like in Christ alone and don't actually believe that. It's one of the most popular hymns that's been turned into a modern song. People sing it. And yet there are people who believe I am the, I am the owner of my eternal destiny. If it's truly in Christ alone, then that's in His electing grace that you are in Christ alone, not by your own choice to be in Christ. And yet, it it continues to be that lightning rod that man will battle his own flesh about his own election. So any discussion about our electing or our election has to begin with the election of Jesus Christ. That's what the prophecy is doing. God the Father is calling to our attention in Isaiah 42, our attention to the elected one, Christ. In the prophecy, Isaiah 42, the Father also declares that the Messiah is my beloved. Now we'll notice that he says in Isaiah 42, in whom my soul delighteth. In Matthew 12, verse 18, he says, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Again, not word for word, but we cannot argue. It's the same person. What's being said in Matthew matches directly up with the prophecy in Isaiah 42. Notice it says a few things. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, testify that God the Father speaks audibly 
at least three times during the earthly ministry of Christ. He speaks audibly. One time at his baptism, which we read about in Matthew 3.17, at his transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5, and when Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify his name in John 12.28. Those occasions are all the occasions where God the Father spoke audibly, and he speaks about being well-pleased. Now, if God the Father is pleased, that means what he's pleased with is perfection. Everybody hear what I'm saying? He's pleased with, with perfection. I could look at you and by a certain activity, I could say, well, that's very pleasing that you did that. That doesn't mean, you're perf- that doesn't mean you've done it perfectly. But when God the Father looked at the Son, he said, now that's perfection. My soul delights in the perfection of my son. And by the way, that is the only way you can stand perfected before God is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is as filthy rags and it would not stand. Your free will choice would not stand. That electing grace of God has to be a part of what's being said here. On the first two occasions of Matthew 3 at his baptism and Matthew 17 at his transfiguration, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, which is nearly a word-for-word repetition of Isaiah's prophecy. My soul is pleased. But then in the prophecy in Isaiah 42, the Father goes on to say something else. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. Now, when did the spirit come upon Christ? It happened at Jesus' baptism. The account tells us in Matthew 3, verse 17, in that passage there, that when the heavens opened up, the Spirit came down upon him as a dove, anointing him for his earthly ministry. A sign of pleasure from God the Father was, again, the Spirit coming down upon the Son. He appointed him and anointed him for earthly ministry. Now again, the prophecy in Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now what's fascinating here is there's a reference to the Gentiles being included in this grace all the way back in Isaiah 42. Now if you know your Bible, and many of you do, maybe all of you do, you know there's a great emphasis throughout the Old Testament to the Jew. But the Gentile is very, very rarely mentioned in such specific terms. But yet here Isaiah 42 says that this will also be the messenger to the Gentiles. And every one of you ought to be saying amen right there because that's exactly what you and I are. The Gentiles who are part of this electing grace of God. Yet all the way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years before the ministry of Christ even comes, Isaiah was already writing about it. He was already talking about it. He will show judgment to the Gentiles. Jesus' primary ministry, of course, when He came was to the Jews, but He did interact and He did preach to the Gentiles. And later on, He commands His apostles to take the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. Of course, the Jews were privied with the first oracles of God, were they not? But as they refused and as they rejected, 
it did turn to the Gentiles. So when we look at Matthew 12, we want, I want you to notice a couple things about this. This is not Jesus speaking these words. Okay, this is not Jesus turning to the people and saying, Behold my servant, whom I've chosen. It is Matthew writing that the reason these things he's observing is the accomplishment of the prophecy in Isaiah 42. So Jesus is not standing up on a stump and saying, Behold, I'm the servant. Matthew is observing. Wait a minute. This is the fulfilling of the prophecy that Isaiah 42 of the servant who would come and he would not do certain things. What are those certain things? Now, we've already dealt with the fact that in, my, in Isaiah, how it's similar to Matthew 12, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Of course, there's things he will do, but then it says here's some things he will not do. He shall not strive, nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. Matthew is now writing under the inspiration of the Spirit about what is currently being done by Christ. One of the main reasons why Jesus withdraws himself from the Pharisees is he is unwilling at this point to irritate, to provoke the Pharisees any longer. He's not randomly, he's not withdrawing himself because he's tired. He's withdrawing himself because this is a fulfillment of prophecy that he will not, he will not strive. Believe it or not, Jesus did not come to contend with every religious opponent. Now we live, I have no problem with apologetics. But I'm telling you right now, Jesus didn't come to strive with every religious opponent. Sometimes all that needs to be said is proclaim the truth of God, proclaim the truth of the gospel, and walk away. And sometimes all we need to do is proclaim the word of God and let the word of God speak for itself. Now I know we are, in general, more educated. Man is more educated than he's ever been. You, there really today is no reason to not be theologically educated because you could go online. Now, you better be careful about where you get educated because there's some really, really bad theology and there's some really bad teaching that's out there. But you understand that theologically, there's no excuse to be ignorant. Again, I mean that respectfully. There's no reason to be uninformed. But your theology is not meant so that you can strive against every opponent because you already know what the truth is. It is the truth that will set man free. It is the truth that will say, listen, I just need to stay on the gospel and on the counsel of God and let the word of God do the speaking. Now, again, there are times we need to speak up. I am not questioning that at all. But what Jesus is doing here is he is removing himself and as he's doing this, Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Spirit, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 42, which says, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, if we're writing the narrative of Jesus Christ's ministry, thankfully we're not, I would write it, the prophecy would be this way. Jesus will stand up in the middle 
and will say it so loud that everybody will hear him. But yet, Isaiah says that's not the way he's going to do it. He's not going to cry, and he's not going to strive. He's going to do something different. By healing the diseases and the ailments, Jesus is also removing himself from all popularity. He's moving himself away from the applause. This is also a fulfilling of prophecy. Earthly princes and earthly kings want applause for everything that they do. I mean, in our look-at-me society, and that's what we are in, that's, that's the primary intent of social media is for us to look at you and to look at me and look what I've done, look what I'm doing. Christ says, no, 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 don't let anybody know about who I am. Do not tell them anything. Now again, if we're writing the narrative, we're saying, why in the world is he not going from town to town saying, look, here I am. It's not what he's doing. There's a fulfillment of the prophecy here. The Holy Spirit, of course, pens the Word of God using human authors. He knows, of course, all of the actions of Christ, but He also knows the disposition of man. He knows what man's going to do. Now, that's where our free will friends get this wrong. They say that the only reason God does what He did is because He knows what man will do with that. There's a lot of holes in that doctrine. Holes that will lead you to an abyss you'll never get out of if you're not careful. But the reality here of what's happening is this prophecy clearly belonged to the Messiah. It's infallible proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah just by what He's not doing. He's not crying. He's not striving. He's removing Himself away from the popularity. He doesn't want man's applause. Man's not going to hear His voice in the streets. Again, so that it might be fulfilled. Here is the servant of God, God's elect, the beloved, well-pleasing, the Spirit of God upon him. He's going to come forth. He's going to reveal God to the nations. But he's not going to do it with applause and he's not going to do it with pomp and circumstance. He's certainly not going to draw attention to himself. He's not going to strive. He's not going to cry. He's going to, for the most part, avoid contention. Now you realize that most of Jesus' earthly ministry, he avoided contention. And you say, well, not all of them. I didn't say all of them, but for the most part, he is not known as contending much. Now the Pharisees, he had interactions with often. And yes, he is pretty strong with them when he calls them whitewashed sepulchers. He calls them vipers. And again, there's even a prophecy in what he's doing with them that's being fulfilled by dealing with, the prophet, with dealing with the Pharisees. He did not aim at raising himself to gain the, the approval of the multitude. He's working in a way that's much different. Now you notice that he's given a couple of names. He's called my servant, right? And he's called my beloved by the Father. Now if, if you really... What an interesting study devotionally and even maybe theologically is meditate on those two titles. My servant and my beloved. What does that mean when God the Father looks at the Son and calls him my beloved and my servant? 
We refer to Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but God the Father refers to him as my servant, my beloved. Those are precious titles. We call him Savior, but my beloved and my servant is equally as precious. Think about what he served and who he served. It's in connection in Matthew 12 with Isaiah 42 that he's called my servant and my beloved. You can see it in verse 18 of our passage. When you connect Isaiah 42 with Matthew 12, you see that Jesus Christ is clearly the chosen of God who's ordained to be his servant and he's beloved and God the Father is well pleased in that capacity. Jesus Christ was always well-pleasing to his father. Always. He never thought about going against his father. He never thought about taking the glory. He didn't say, I'm going to go against my father's will. No, he said, I came to do my father's will and be obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. This servant of God who would have the Holy Spirit upon him would come proclaiming a doctrine. A doctrine that he would teach and he would mention the very law, not as something to be totally done away with, but a law that he would perfectly proclaim and fulfill. Do you realize the entire life of Jesus Christ condemns man's sin? His entire life condemns man because he lived in in perfectness. He was perfect. But he doesn't proclaim that by wielding a sword, by pomp and circumstance, but he does it by the Spirit of the Lord and the truth. You know, when an earthly king tries to take over another region, he does it by earthly physical power. It's the only power he has. The only power an earthly king has is what he can gather physically and materially and depends upon his financial ability to acquire that which he needs to carry out his plan, right? Every nation that's trying to take over another nation, they're only operating in those, in those realms with their physical power. That's why many of the Jews were, were alarmed when they saw Jesus coming and they are realizing, why didn't he come and do away with the Roman Empire, why did he not cut it down to size and assume the throne then? Because he didn't just come to set up an earthly throne. He didn't come to just set up an earthly kingdom. We've got to stop living as if this is what is intended. This is not why Christ died. And yet he's going to do it, not in the power of men, but in the power of the Spirit. You know, all that keeps happening in religious circles is more controversy. Man gets more angry the longer the controversy goes on. Watch a couple people who are arguing two points of view, even in well-intended theological debates. Watch how quick they lose their testimony and fall into the flesh and start screaming at each other. It accomplishes nothing. Matter of fact, the unbelieving world looks at that and says, how do you have two people who are arguing like that and acting that way? 
Jesus himself's not even acting that way. He's not, he's not striving with everybody who's an opponent in front of him. No, it's by the Spirit and the truth. You realize if you already have the Spirit of God upon you and you already have the truth of God, you already have the power that you need to basically put down any opposition. Now again, I'm not talking about some kind of prosperity foolishness. I'm just telling you, we're not to acquire and gain by striving and contention and controversy. Stand on the truth. Everybody wants to pattern their life after Jesus' servant ministry. But very few religious people want to follow this part of it. Where you just allow the Word of God to actually speak. The power is in the Spirit. The power is in the truth. The wrath of man will always lead us to argue over traditions, argue over whatever the popular philosophy of the day is. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of with all their Sabbath day restrictions. Remember, they made up more rules than the Old Testament law actually said. And that's what's happening today. There are more Sabbath rules than there's ever been. The problem is most of them are traditions and they're not biblically based. And yet, here you have Jesus himself. Notice he says that he shall not cry, no man will hear his voice. And we're going to get to this in a moment because this is a fascinating illustration he uses. A bruised reed shall not he break and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. So we're jumping a little bit ahead. I want you to look at that, till he send forth judgment unto victory. We're going to come back to the bruised reed and the smoking flax. But what does he mean by judgment here? Something that is judged by God means that it is in a settled state. In other words, when God puts his judgment on it, there's no room for argument. There's no room for debate. There's no more controversy. Ultimately, wherever Christ goes, he is preaching and proclaiming a true gospel, a true quote-unquote religion. He's going to prevail. Wherever the Lord reigns, wherever the Lord has said He will reign, it is His governance and His rule that will ultimately be the settled state of man. The reason I don't worry about everything that happens in our world today is because I believe the promises of the prophecies that will come to be that everything will, at God's appointed hour, come under the settled state of God's kingdom. And it's not going to happen or be moved or hindered because of what I do or say or what I don't do or what I do. What I do is because we're called to be obedient. We're called to proclaim the gospel. We're not called to get results. We're called to preach the gospel because that's what he's told us to do. And it's a privilege to preach the gospel. Not to get results. Because when final judgment comes, when all of the dust settles, God's settled state through Christ Jesus will be the final say on all of it. I love what Gill said about this. And many of you know, I love John Gill commentaries. And again, we could, we could discuss some things if you are familiar with Gill and some have some negative things to say. But I want you to hear what he said about both of these, taking Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12 together. He said, these are the words of God the Father speaking to the church concerning Christ. 
as mediator, who as such is God's servant, employed by him and obedient to him in the work of man's salvation, and is a righteous, faithful, prudent, and diligent one, whom he from all eternity had chosen to this service and in the fullness of time sent him to do it and supported and upheld him in it. For it is, it is whom I uphold in the Hebrew text. My beloved in whom my soul was well pleased, who always was the object of his love, not only as his own and only begotten son, but as in his office capacity as mediator, in regard to which he was his elect. As it is in Isaiah and as such, he was always delighted in his person, well pleased with his office and the discharge of it. God the Father has always been pleased with the Son. Now, I don't know if you think about the ramifications, eternally speaking, for that. But if at one moment, God the Father was displeased with the Son, the entirety of our salvation unravels and crumbles. But not one moment was God the Father ever displeased with the Son. We get displeased with each other. We get displeased with ourselves. God the Father was never displeased with His servant, His Son. And it leads us to these interesting illustrations. These have caused a lot of consternation for people over the years. As a matter of fact, there are many times people avoid passages like this because we're afraid of the bruised reed and the smoking flax. What does he mean? This, this almost seems to, pardon the expression, come out of left field. He's talking about what he won't do. He's talking about who he is. God's pleased with him. But he's using an illustration that was very common in the Old Testament specifically, but that the hearers and the readers would also have an understanding. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. We already learned that this, the settled judgment is a settled state. But what is this about Isaiah's statement? Because he makes the same statement about the bruised reed. He says, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. A little bit different, but he still talks about the same illustrations. What are you and I supposed to do with this? Well, in the ancient world, uh, people would use these river reeds. They would grow in the wet areas. And these reeds were used to make many different items. Most often, they were used to write what we would know as writing utensils, writing tools. But they were actually used to make flutes. It's that reeds had a great use to them. But when somebody would gather these reeds, they wouldn't just take all the reeds and just assume they were all suitable. As a matter of fact, the person collecting the reeds would look at them, they would inspect them, and as he would look at them, he would find some of these reeds were not perfect. They were bruised. They had blemishes on them. So what they would do, it was very common. You can even read historical accounts about this. They would take the reed, they would snap it in two and discard it. You, can, you, can, <laughs> you should be able to see the imagery starting to come in, into focus here. This, root is, this reed is bruised, it's blemished, snap it, toss it. The reeds were so common that they were not throwing away anything of value. The reeds were, <laughs> they were everywhere. 
wasn't like a, uh, a commodity that was in lacking substance or lacking supply. The craftsman who was making that pen or that flute or whatever he was using, he would keep looking until he found one that was suitable. And if he found one that's suitable and he didn't have enough, he would keep going back to the, where he's getting the reeds until he got enough to make however many he was making. Now Isaiah is using this, and Scripture does this often, metaphorically. Okay, we, are, we, we believe the Bible literally, but there are examples in Scripture where we are to look at that and say, okay, this is a metaphor. In our study on Wednesday night of Revelation, we're learning that very quickly. When it described John's vision of Jesus having a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a metaphor for Jesus, who he is, not to be taken as here's this man wearing this long robe with white hair with a sword coming out of his mouth. It's meant to be a metaphor to describe the characteristics of who Jesus is. The metaphor that Isaiah is using and Matthew's talking about is not so much about the reed. So we don't write a whole message about the value of a reed. Okay? In some of your topical churches, that's where this would run. It would run to your value as a reed. I've been there, I've done that. Well, the reed itself, if you want to go that far, doesn't have any value. It has no value to it. If you tried to sell a reed, nobody's going to give any money for it because it doesn't offer anything real. There's millions of them. But he's using this as a metaphor. Isaiah cites these reeds as a metaphor for people. And there's really two meanings that are going on here. First of all, he's talking about that when the Messiah comes and the Messiah finds people who are people who are, who are bruised, people that are imperfect, people with withered hands, people that are lame, people that are blind, people that can't hear. He's, he's given us this beautiful metaphor that he's not going to snap them in two like a useless reed and throw them away. You need to think about that and take that real serious this morning and think about the fact he's not just going to snap them off and toss them. He's not just going to discard them. If we were to take this and take it all the way out to a logical conclusion, we understand that every one of us is, a, every one of us is imperfect. And if you think God went to the, the river reeds and he plucked you out and he found the one, he said, now look, that's a real valuable one right there. No, we're all bruised imperfect reeds. No matter how many times he goes back and looks to us, all he's going to keep seeing is imperfection. And what we're deserving of is to just be snapped in two and thrown away. Christ didn't discard us, but he redeemed you if you're in Christ. We are not on our way to heaven and we're not in the kingdom of God because we're perfect or because we did enough righteous works or where good works outweigh our bad. You are on your way to heaven because Jesus Christ himself elected and chose and put you into the kingdom of God. These reeds, he's going to take it one step further. We'll come back to that in a moment. What about the smoking flax? Is this a random metaphor? No, Isaiah again is talking about images that people would understand. Flax in and of itself 
was used to light lamps. Lamps, believe it or not, they did not have the supplies of things that we have. <laughs> People are shocked. We, it's, it's, it's so bad. It's so bad when we see people use Bible stories and they put all these modern conveniences into that trying to make the Bible story more come alive. I'm like, they wouldn't have even had that. But these flax was used to make wicks. And the wicks would be used to be lit in order to provide light. Now the problem is, just like with the reed, this flax was made out of a plant. This flax was made of a, a fibrous plant. So if you tried to light this lamp and the piece of flax had a flaw in it, and by the way, most of them did, it would not light and keep the flame, but rather it would actually smoke and let off a terrible smell. Metaphors are unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. It, 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 so instead of letting it smoke and letting it put off this awful smell, the smoking flax would be quenched. How would he do that? Well, the person who lit it would just simply reach down with their thumb and their index finger and put it out. Much like we would do today. You just do it quickly and it puts it out. What would he do? He would go look for another piece of flax and he would keep doing it until he found one. You understand that as he found these new pieces of flax, eventually one of those pieces of flax would burn properly. Again, back to the metaphor for God's people. You realize that we are all broken, bruised reeds and we're just as val we have as much value as a smoking flax. What's, what is Isaiah saying? He's not coming to those, and he's not coming for those who have their own righteousness. He's not coming for those who have their own sense of no need of the Messiah. He's coming for bruised, imperfect reeds who are like smoking flax. But there's also this reality that the Pharisees would not have considered themselves to be a bruised reed. They would not have considered themselves to be smoking flax. As a matter of fact, they would have said, well, I'm the perfect reed. I'm the reed that was found that the man used because that's who I am. Because they truly thought that they were that. But they would never say, I'm a smoking flax. I am, I am burning brightly. You realize that when Christ came to save, He didn't come to save the proud. He came to save those who were humble. Those who, in their lack of pride... Imagine being part of the family of God and having no real value that you add to the Savior. Folks, we don't make God better. We don't make God of more value. We are just objects of His amazing love. Undeserving love. Imperfect Bruised reeds, smoking flax. Listen, if, if sinners today, and again, we're all still sinners, but if those who are in unbelief today would grab hold of the reality and remember this, 
Christ is not coming to look for the self-righteous. He's not coming for those who believe they're saved by their own good works. And again, in the context, these Pharisees truly believe that they were perfect Sabbath keepers. They believe that they are perfect law keepers. They believe that they were the standard. In the eyes of God, a Pharisee is nothing more than a bruised reed and that smoking flax. And there is. God is, God is not interested in those. And it says very, much, very clearly about that. A bruised reed is not going to break. Smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. He will pronounce sentence and judgment. He will show himself to be conqueror over all his enemies. Jesus Christ could have declared, or we would have thought he could declare right now, listen, you Pharisees, you have no power over me. But he didn't. Until the time came. You see, we really do need to believe that we are not in a battle that God is losing or has lost any ground. He's not even lost a battle. He's not even lost a war. Jesus Christ is victorious. And Isaiah was promising he's going to be victorious, but he's not going to do it the way you think he's going to do it. Folks, I can't tell you why people are so turned off by true salvation by grace. I can't tell you how much hatred it puts in people's hearts. Man cannot stand the fact that they have nothing to do with it. They hate it. The Pharisees thought they had everything to do with it. We say, I'm glad the Pharisees don't exist anymore. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And you're a Pharisee if you think that you have your own righteousness and that you have your own ability to save yourself. It's the epitome of pride to believe that you can save yourself. Because you really don't know how depraved you are if you think you can have any part of saving yourself. Well, no, preacher, I, I'm just about 1%. That's 1% thinking too highly of yourself. Because even your 1% isn't there. And then look at, this, look at this beautiful statement. And in His name shall the Gentiles trust. Now again, I don't want to go too long on this, but you realize that the Gentile was despised by the Jew. So much that we read about the woman at the well, how that Jesus went out of his way to meet with her and wouldn't go through certain areas because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They hated the Gentiles. They hated anybody who was not one of them. But notice who it says the Gentiles are to trust in. In his name, the servant, my beloved God's grace is so grand and so good that even the despised, and this is not my words, this is what the Bible actually calls them and what, because it says what the Jews called them, that even these despised, despicable Gentile dogs are going to come and fall at His feet and they will love Him as their King and as their Master. I tell you, one of the most beautiful stories is Matthew 15, verse 21. And some people look at this and they say, uh, this, 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 doesn't, this seems like Jesus is insulting this woman. 
you're missing it. If this is not an insult, this is a, this is beautiful. Matthew 15 verse 21. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. I've heard people say Jesus was being cruel to her. He's not being cruel to her. He's testing her faith. He's testing what she's getting ready to say. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. You see the disciples, Jesus, just let her be. But I love the way he dealt with her. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, how would you feel? (laughs) This that's meant for the children's bread. This is a reference to the Jew. You're not worthy to this. It's not even meat to take that and give it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Isn't that amazing? She's not not arguing with what he just said. Truth. I'm not worthy to receive this. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the least of the crumbs that fall off the table. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the Master's table. The Gentiles are eating the crumbs that fell from the master's table. Oh, I don't like that. I'm worth more than the crumbs. Crumbs from the master's table. Think about the beauty in this. The Gentiles are going to trust in the same name. If you're in Christ today, you are trusting in the same name. It's in Jesus Christ or no other name. There is no other name in which man can be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. He will be the hope and is the hope of all of those who were left hopeless. Our Lord Jesus' ministry of quiet, non-striving, avoiding conflict proved Him to be the Messiah of the prophets, just like Isaiah said. How much more should we trust now that we see fully that He is the promised Messiah? I've said this many times, but if a prediction comes true, somebody makes a random prediction on television and it actually happens, we think the guy's a genius. I mean, somebody on a news station will say, this is going to happen, it happens. Well, I, I believe that. Over 400 prophecies are fulfilled and it clearly says Jesus is the Messiah and yet you will not trust Him. And you will not call upon Him. You will not repent of your sin. You will not obey the command, repent and believe the gospel. Because you keep saying, I need more proof. Prophecy fulfilled shows us very clearly that there's no arguing who the Messiah is. And even today, if you came in and you said, I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. Now now you're held accountable. You know it. That the only remedy for your sin is through Christ alone. 
and to repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ, not on me, on Christ. The very best news of all that was proclaimed by Isaiah is that up until the time when the kingdom enters into a settled state, God is still seeking to save that which is lost. He's not going to find self-righteous people that are worthy of the kingdom. He's not looking for people like the Pharisee. He's looking for those that will approach God in a manner of humility. And as we've been saying, if you're here today and you say, I just don't believe any of this, pray to God, say, Lord, help my unbelief. I don't want to do that. Why would we not want to know the truth? Why, why would we not want to know the truth? We live in a society that actually prefers lies to truth. And you say, that's an extreme position. That's okay, you could disagree with that. But you understand, I mean, people will believe a lie more than they'll believe the truth. This is a picture. It's a picture of our Lord. Isaiah prophesied many, many years before Jesus' incarnation, and yet it reminds us that what God could have done with us, what God could have done with everybody, is He could have just simply broke them off. You and I deserve, we deserve everlasting punishment. We deserve hell. We deserve hellfire. We deserve that. And yet He did not discard us. And if you're in Christ today, folks, if you're in Christ today, today ought to be a moment where you just take the time to thank Him for, for, for putting you into the kingdom of God and, and not discarding you. Because He didn't come and call you when you started to clean yourself up, when you started getting a little religion, when you started to get a little bit of righteousness. No, He came when you were in a helpless, hopeless state. Whether you were saved, converted very young or very old, He didn't save you because you were in a better state. He found imperfection, sin. Despite all of our sin and all of our iniquities, think about this, God set His love upon His elect. You know, someone who's lovable back to you is really easy to love. We would all agree with that. That's why it's so hard for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church because the wife is not always lovable and the husband's not always lovable. Yet it's not about whether they reciprocate or not. That's the command. God set His love upon you even when you were unlovable. And by the way, I hate to break it to you, you're unlovable many days. You say, who could not love me? That's how, that's how highly we think of ourselves. I can see how God doesn't love that person, but me? He didn't love you because you're lovable. He set His love upon you before the foundation of the world, a mystery that we will never fully understand. 
And yet, this prophecy fulfilled. How unlikely was it that the Gentiles would actually be given the ability to call upon His name? How unlikely was it for you and I to trust in His name? Again, where would we be without the grace of God? You would be in an unconverted state. You say, maybe, maybe not. Without the grace of God, you would be in an unconverted state. And if you say you wouldn't be, you don't understand grace. Because grace is not this modern contemporary view of grace. Salvation is all of God, all of grace. If it wasn't for His grace, you're unconverted. You are discarded. You are extinguished. You are thrown out. Yet, God said through His Spirit, Behold my servant. Folks, if you've never trusted in Christ today, repent of your sin and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I cannot plead with you any stronger than that. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. And Lord, I'm not even sure I'm grasping fully the love that's been set upon us. Lord, we're so prone to put human conditions and human terms and human, human emotions on this. But Father, I pray that as, as the, the Word has gone forth, that the Spirit of God would give us true discernment, discernment in this matter. That, Lord, we would not look upon this as something that we deserve, something that we were worthy of, but that in our unlovable, unconverted state, God set His love upon us. And, Father, may that humble us today. But, Lord, those of us who are in Christ today and we understand what we've heard today, Lord, our heart is burdened and our heart breaks for those around us who are still in that state. They're unconverted. They're unbelieving. They're unwilling to yield. Lord, they are, they are, they are, they are a hardness and their neck grows, grows stiffer where we know that salvation is of the Lord. And if there is anyone here in this building or even listening online who is still relying on righteousness and is refusing, Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would open their eyes and open their ears to receive this truth and be converted. Father, may we not use anything that we've heard today for our own arrogance, for our own way to impress people. But may this have the effect of humbling us and bring us into a spirit of worship and praise that your love was set upon us. Father, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.